And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. My name's Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. This is our third episode of October 2017. We're just getting closer and closer to the the magical day of All Hallows' Eve. (laughs) You're counting down to Halloween. I'm counting down to my radio station's fundraiser. Oh, sure. That's uh, at the end of the month, around that time? Right around that time, yeah. Usually the last day of the fundraiser is on Halloween. This year it's a couple days before. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's going to be a busy, busy time. (laughs) But that's all right. What are we watching today, Ben? Well, uh, today we are watching White Zombie. It stars Bella Lugosi. And it's going to be, I think, a real treat for us. It's our first zombie movie. Yeah. Not going to be the last that we cover <laughs> on this show. No. Of course, the zombies in White Zombie are a little bit different from the modern crop of zombies that have sort of dominated pop culture for 40 years now. I'm sure there's a ton of stuff out there that kind of traces the... Development of, I guess, representation of zombies. (laughs) But, like, what you kind of think of is, like, right now you think of The Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. um, But traditionally, like, George Romero zombie is kind of what everyone thinks of immediately. Yeah, he sort of reinvented the whole concept and everyone's kind of more or less used his version of the concept ever since. And, of course, that's something and that development is something we're going to be likely covering on this show <laughs> for sure as it goes in yeah. you know our zombie related episodes <laughs> um but white zombies the first mm-hmm. and it is about the sort of traditional haitian derived concept of zombies yeah. sort of derived from uh traditional haitian culture and the sort of westernized ideas of what voodoo is mm-hmm. um And I thought maybe you'd like to talk to us a little bit about Haiti and voodoo and zombies so that we have a bit of cultural context to view and judge white zombie in. For sure. I will say that there is a lot of history to Haiti. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to parse things down so that there is enough of a cultural context. I'm probably still giving a ton more than maybe what people need to watch White Zombie. But I give this level of detail because I wanted to give a lot of respect to this culture, especially being an outsider to this culture. For sure. And I mean, you might think it's a lot of detail, but I'm sure there might be people who listen and go, oh, well, they missed this, that, or the other thing. Totally. And I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, we're a horror movie podcast, not a... History. Not a history podcast, right. I mean, (laughs) we kind of are because of the way we've structured the show, but not colonial history, uh, film history. Yeah. So um, we're trying to figure out what the best balance is in terms of giving too much versus too little (laughs) information. But why don't we just dive right in, Sarah? For sure. For listeners who aren't fully aware of where Haiti is, uh, it's a country 
on the western side of the island Hispaniola, and it shares the island with the Dominican Republic. To kind of start telling the history of Haiti, uh, even this brief overview, we're going to go way, way back to history's favorite fuckboy, Christopher Columbus. So during Christopher Columbus's voyage to find a route to India, he came across a large island that had five different chiefdoms. Columbus named the island Hispaniola, and he established the settlement La Navidad using what would remain of his wrecked ship. Yes. <laughs> um, this was 1492, and when Columbus returned to La Navidad the following year, it had been burned to the ground and all 39 settlers killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Columbus decided to move east along the island to establish settlements elsewhere. Mm-hmm. The indigenous Taino people were not farewell with this exposure to Europeans, as many indigenous populations did not farewell, and they nearly went extinct on this island. Mm-hmm. Columbus's techniques as a governor were uh, extreme, to say the least. Cruel and extreme. Spain would continue to focus on settling the eastern half of Hispaniola as Dutch and especially French traders and pirates established and operated out of the western half. Okay. Running the Spaniards out of settlements through attacks back and forth. Mm-hmm. In 1625, French pirates established a settlement on a small island called Tortuga, which is north of... Haiti, just slightly north. The Isle of Tortuga from, like, Pirates of the Caribbean? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a real place. Okay. And it has a long and uh, glorious history of piracy. All right. <laughs> Joined by Dutch and English pirates, they would run an international lawless community of pirates targeting specifically Spanish vessels. Mm-hmm. That's because the Spanish vessels had the most gold. Yeah. England would make attempts to bring these settlements uh, in Tortuga and on the western side of Hispaniola into its own empire through diplomacy, naming this uh, guy named Jeremy Deschamps governor in 1660, and the English were pretty sure that Jeremy was on their side. They were very surprised when Deschamps turned around and uh, proclaimed the western half of the island for the King of France. Oh, snap! Plot twist! <laughs> And um, in around 1660, this starts the nearly unbroken French rule in Haiti. Mm. But the other side of the island stayed under Spanish control. Yes. Okay. 1664 is when France officially took control of the western side and named uh, that half of the island Saint-Domingue. The years following had settlers and farmers gradually outnumber the pirates, um, partly in thanks to the success in tobacco, cotton, coffee, and cocoa plantations. Plantations, of course, run by African slaves. So this next century would see Saint-Domingue become France's Pearl of the Antilles, uh, producing around 40% and 60% of all sugar and coffee, respectively, consumed in all of Europe. Of course, all built off of the backs of African slaves. By the 1780s, Saint-Domingue accounted for a third of the entire Atlantic slave trade. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Most of these slaves were coming from the West Africa region. 
in terms of the slaves that were being brought in who would have practiced or had been at least exposed to the practice of voodoo, many of these slaves would have come from the countries of Ghana, Togo, and Benin, but it's really more along ethnic group lines rather than geographic lines in terms of which people practiced voodoo in Africa. These ethnic groups would be the Yawo people, the Khan, Gun, Kabye, and Jen-speaking people, um, but this is all along kind of Western Africa near the coast in various different regions and in these different countries. Around 40,000 slaves were brought in per year. Thanks to what's called the Code Noir, which is a 1685 proclamation, corporal punishment was given to slave masters, allowing for very brutal treatment of these people. Mm. Given these conditions, people would die at a rate that would not allow slaves to uh, grow in population by natural means, I guess. Okay. Uh, which is why they had such large numbers of people being brought in. Mm. Um, also, with this many people being brought in and no real populations being established, there wasn't a lot of time for assimilation to occur right. or for really fully destroying those cultural ties for these uh, African people being brought in. Okay. Many slaves, of course, revolted and would escape, uh, and they actually would form raiding parties that were disconnected across the island, and these parties would raid plantations, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and voodoo actually helped these bands rally together in order to fight against colonialism and, and oppression. As like, a, as like a cultural unifier? A little bit, yeah. This one voodoo priest, the male priests are called Hungans, this one Hungan called Makandal, um, he originated from Guinea, uh, but he escaped in 1751, and he helped unite bands for over six years through the cultural practice of voodoo. In these raids that Makandal would lead, they were specifically about destroying white colonialism and fighting against oppression. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he was captured and killed in 1758. With this large population of slaves, it's kind of interesting to note how St. Domingue had a very large population of wealthy and free people of color, known as the Jeanne de Couleur. These were past slaves or people of mixed heritage. Mm -hmm. They were, of course, still discriminated against, especially through the class system, but it's, I think it's still interesting to note how there's a hierarchy of skin color basically being established, but that these people who had come from slavery were working their way through this class system, even to the point of owning land and having plantations themselves. The history of slavery and how it culturally worked is is subtly different between like French colonialism, Spanish colonialism, British colonialism, uh, the later American use of slavery. It, it, it has a little bit of a different flavor culturally from, you know, one colonial power to another. Definitely. In 1789, we have the French Revolution. Oh, sure. And, of course, the Declaration on the Rights of Man. There's this revolution going on in France, and then on the other side of the world, there's this colony who... There's interesting, like, political things going on as a result of this revolution. Yeah. 
the wealthy white class wanted to take this opportunity to secede from France. But by the following year, in Saint-Domingue, um, civil war would break out with the Jeanne de Killer, arguing that the Declaration on the Rights of Man applied to them as well. Sure. And they should not be discriminated against. I mean, it seems like a fair philosophical conclusion to come to. But they still wanted to own slaves. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was a thing. Um, I want to get mine, but not necessarily anyone else's, yeah. Right. In 1791... The Haitian Revolution officially began with a call to arms by Hungan Duddy Bookman, starting with a voodoo religious event, mm-hmm. um, calling for a, a, a call to arms. <laughs> Thus began slaves uprising against their masters and eventually becoming independent. Mm-hmm. There's, of course, much, much more to this history here, including, you know, emancipation in 1793. And Haiti was the first, like, successful slave revolt, like, liberated country, right? Yes. um, Haiti gained its independence in 1804, and I just thought it was interesting to note that the three main tenets of its constitution were freedom of religion, Mm -hmm. all Haitians are considered black, and that's to eliminate the racial tiered system that had been established earlier. Interesting. And it specifies white men, but white people are forbidden from owning property huh. for the fear of slavery occurring again on this land. Sure. Haiti would struggle to unite its regions for the next century uh, and would see dictators rise and fall, um, as all countries and new countries kind of do. And the U.S. would actually step in and occupy Haiti in 1915. Okay. What was the the pretense for that? Not to help them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's because Banks complained to then-President Woodrow Wilson about Haiti's inability to pay off their debt. Okay. Interesting. Uh, So the U.S. would step in try to organize things so that maybe Haiti could start making money off of, like, exports or whatever, have money to pay back its debtors. And they did this with a military occupation? Yeah. During this occupation, uh, they came across this old slavery-era law that would require people to work to build roads in lieu of road taxes. Okay. Which, you know, on paper it's like, Okay, interesting idea. In implementation, uh, armed guards would force Haitians to work for hours on end building roads uh, akin to slavery, according to many Haitians Mm. and historians. So while this occupation would see Haiti's infrastructure built up a bit more, it was at the cost of many people's lives through protests and revolts and historians actually estimate that around 15,000 people would die from this occupation. How long did the occupation last? 1915 to 1934. Oh, so quite quite a long time then, like almost 20 years. Yeah, um, and notably during the release of this movie. Mm-hmm. Because this movie was 1932. So that's the, the brief overview of Haitian history leading up to the context of where this film is. Right, so this movie's coming out when the U.S. was occupying Haiti. Yes. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit to talk about Haitian voodoo. Mm -hmm. 
part of the reason why I wanted to give the history in that level of detail is because Haitian voodoo is very unique because of this history with slavery, particularly the French Catholic influences and the West African influences with these slaves being brought over. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like a, uh, as a religious belief, it's sort of a mix of a lot of different cultural influences, right? Yeah, yeah. Because of the attempts to deculturalize slaves, and this happened in all the contexts of slavery, um, I mentioned earlier the enactment of the Code Noir in 1685 and how it enabled slave owners to use corporal punishment. Part of that code legislated that slaves must be converted to Catholicism within eight days of arriving in the country. Mm. Voodoo has a very diverse pantheon already, so the idea of Catholicism with God at the head and then these many different saints mm -hmm. translated well into adopting those ideas into voodoo to hide their worship. Mm -hmm. With slavery also aiming to alienate the individuals from their families, their lineage, um, and their cultures, people would pool their fragmented understandings and memories of voodoo together, leading to this like weird mishmash of voodoo that's not what you would find in Western and Central Africa, um, in those countries there, even distinct from the voodoo that you would see in, like, New Orleans right. and Louisiana. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, over time, this voodoo in Haiti morphed into this very unique and, uh, honestly, like, Creole religion, mm -hmm. where Catholic saints and Catholic practices and symbols were enveloped into voodoo. Kind of what I alluded to earlier as well is how closely voodoo is tied with Haitian independence and emancipation. Um, I mentioned Makandal, the Hungan priest who would lead those raiding parties. And with the Haitian Revolution in 1791, with that beginning with this voodoo ceremony, in 1835, so this is around 30-ish years after the establishment of Haiti, the state was not recognizing voodoo as an official religion or really a religion at all. There was a lot of distancing themselves from this cultural aspect. I suspect it's kind of to be taken seriously on the world stage. Sure, sure. But I think there's also an element of the power that comes from this cultural practice, both in uniting peoples and in the um, perceived power of the priests and priestesses, and being afraid of that. Sure, right. Like, you know, it threatening the political system, the new political system being set up, yeah. Yeah, and you can kind of see this dichotomy, uh, even in recent history with Haiti, kind of using uh, the 2010 earthquake as an example. After the earthquake happened, there were traditional voodoo ceremonies organized in order to appease spirits. Um, yet there were also attacks against practitioners um, as they were scapegoated as being responsible for the earthquake. Mm. And after the earthquake, there was an outbreak of cholera, and uh, some voodoo priests were actually lynched because it was believed that they were spreading the disease. So, what is voodoo? <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting. Yeah, what's kind of interesting is 
it's not really described as like a quote-unquote religion, but rather as, quote, an experience that binds body and soul together. So I, I think that's interesting that even the practitioners themselves don't call it a religion per se, but rather like a cultural practice almost. I okay, yeah, for sure. Um, so there's a supreme god named Bandai, which kind of comes from the French words good god, bon Dieu. Sure. And there's these lesser spirits, Loa. Um, and that's where you can kind of see the, the saints being brought in from Catholicism. Um, some kind of notable spirits are Papa Ligba, guardian of crossroads, Izuli Freda, spirit of love, and Kuzenzaka, spirit of agriculture. And don't forget Baron Samdi, Lord of the Dead. <laughs> yeah. What's really interesting is um, Catholic practices and the saints were actually enveloped into voodoo, right? So some of these spirits are actually associated with Roman Catholic saints. Um, for example, Papa Legba, guardian of crossroads, is kind of equivalent to Saint Anthony the Hermit. Mm. And they're kind of like seen as synonymous too, which is really neat. Yeah, I mean that used to be a very common cultural practice in religions where for a long time, it was very common for other cultures to interpret a foreign religion as simply another version of their religion. You know, the Romans were really famous for that, just sort of interpreting everyone's pantheon as a version of their pantheon yeah. um, as a way to ensure religious harmony. Mm -hmm. Services involve a lot of songs and prayers. Sometimes animals such as pigs, goats, chickens, and bulls will be sacrificed. Um, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but there's hungins, which are male priests, and mambos, which are female priests. And these priests are chosen by dead ancestors. Okay. They do do spells, but it's in the service of good and specifically good to the community. What I thought was interesting with voodoo is, in doing this research, is it's always in service to the community and coming together. There's not a lot of talk about individualism or things like that, which looking at the history of everything makes a lot of sense of like joining together mm -hmm. um but i thought that was interesting to note so those are the for lack of a better word good priests then there's um i i guess you could kind of call them like dark sorcerers okay called bokor these are sorcerers that cast spells and and work within darker magic with these spells they aren't accepted by the regular priests Okay, but the utility of them is like, if instead of wanting to ensure that your, I don't know, that your crops are good this year, you want to ensure that that dude who caught you off in traffic is going to have a bad time, you'd go to the Bokor instead of the Hungan. I think a better allegory is evil witch versus good priest. Mm -hmm. Something like that. But I mean, what's the... You know, why did, what's the, the role or the function that these bokors serve in the practice, right? And it's for when people want bad things to happen to people, I would assume. I guess. This is where the idea of zombies in voodoo kind of come from, mm. uh, in Haitian voodoo. Um, so a bokor can trap souls in jars, and then it's used to control the dead body. 
A zombie can be made from someone who is living rather than someone who's already dead. Uh, if the Bokor is powerful enough to uh, take the soul from the body temporarily, and this is often through uh, a hex. Um, these zombies are gaunt, they have gray skin, staring eyes as if they're in a trance, clumsy and slow, they shamble, they speak, which is interesting, um, just very like basic phrases, but kind of the, the big thing is that they look like they are sleepwalking in a sense, and um, you can command them to do whatever you might need them to do, so they lack that free will. Right, so they're they're sort of undead, but like being mind-controlled to do tasks. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it can free a zombie, according to legend, by breaking the jar that has their soul. There are documented cases of zombies, and uh, I guess zombification is outlawed in the Haiti Criminal Code. Okay. Like, the earliest example of it being outlawed is in 1883, but even in its most recent penal code, the making of zombies in, in not so many words, um, it's all phrased in the idea of poisoning someone without giving death and causing more or less a prolonged state of lethargy. Mm. The punishment for zombification is on par with murder. Sure. So creating a zombie is seen as the same as murdering someone. Well, I mean, if the idea is that you're trapping someone's soul, and if you're coming from it from a religious perspective, like, what's the worst crime? What's a more, you know, worse crime you could commit than, like, denying someone's soul from its rightful resting place, right? Yeah. With all of these cases of zombies being recorded, many scholars have gone to investigate what is up in Haiti. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And kind of the, the one person I want to point to, even though there's been quite a few, is uh, this ethnobotanist named Wade Davis. So he went to Haiti in 1982, and he was investigating the case of Clairvius Narcisse, who had died. It was documented he died, doctors signed the death certificate, and then 16 years later, he was found wandering the wilderness, didn't know how he got there or what was up. So Davis, in very extensive research of both voodoo mythology and plants and things like that on the island, he found that a mixture of plants and animals, specifically the neurotoxin from pufferfish, could quote-unquote kill a victim in the sense that it looks like they are dead, they, they have no pulse, but once the poison wears off, the person awakes. I think I've seen that trick in some comic books before. <laughs> so after poisoning someone with this neurotoxin, they'd awake being buried, and then using another drug derived from Jimson's weed, it puts the person into a trance, and they are incredibly vulnerable to suggestion and commands. Okay. What Wade Davis found substantiates the myths and legends and lore around the Bokor, mm -hmm. and what they would use, and um, how they documented how much of the toxins to use, everything like that. Right, like it's, it's pretty much saying, like, this is a real thing, it's just that there's some pharmacology behind it instead of magic spells or whatever. Yeah, and probably the reason that zombies are in people's public consciousness 
at the time of this movie being made, 1932, is um, there is this writer and reporter named William Seabrook who wrote for the New York Times, Vanity Fair, Reader's Digest, and more. He was kind of known for these investigative pieces that would look at other cultures. Okay. So he published The Magic Island in 1929, where he was investigating Haitian zombies. The following year, he would publish Jungle Ways, which uh, was looking at cannibalism. And yeah, in The Magic Island, he met zombies, like people considered to be zombies, and he was questioning whether zombies really existed, how they came to be, and, like, this is 1929, so it's not, and it's a reporter, so it's not incredibly scientific, but he, the fact that he had published this book documenting that, like, hey, zombies exist, and that was published, like, three years before this movie was made, I think there's, like, a relationship there for the inspiration for this movie. Yeah, I mean, this is a, you know, Haiti as a country was more linked to France, traditionally, for a lot of its history, but with the U.S. occupation, it makes sense that you'd have sort of an American mainland cultural curiosity of like, okay, well, what is this place that our military and tax dollars are going to oppressing, like, and yeah. sending people in and, you know, publishing books. And that would, you know, it makes sense that it would be a period where people are just starting to learn about these concepts of voodoo and zombies and so it's starting to, you know, seep into the popular culture for the first time. Like, we should clarify, people are starting to learn about this nationwide. Like, obviously, the idea of voodoo is established in, like, South Louisiana and sure. such through the cultures there. That's very true. That's very true. But I guess... The wider public knowledge across the country. Yeah, and, and in, in, you know, mainland white America and... Specifically of Haitian voodoo, as opposed to Louisiana voodoo, which, as you pointed out, is uh, very different and distinct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, the idea of voodoo dolls, mm -hmm. like a doll where you put the pins in, that doesn't really exist in Haitian voodoo. Mm -hmm. It's specifically Louisiana. Right, and I don't know if the Louisiana or New Orleans, like, American voodoo has, like, zombies in it, really, like Haiti does. Yeah, they have vampires. But uh, not, not necessarily zombies. Right. So, by mid-1932, when this film came out, the trend of American horror films had been exploited to various levels of success by Universal, Paramount, MGM, and independent producers. Uh, we've sort of seen this boom occur, uh, which is noticeable in the fact that we've had more movies you know, in 1932 than we've had in any previous year up to this point mm -hmm. uh, in this genre, and we're only halfway through the year. Yeah. These films had so far played upon existing literary and theatrical traditions, but White Zombie would bring something brand new to the screen as the first film about zombies. And it's not based off anything. Correct. White Zombie was brought to the screen by the Halperin brothers, Victor and Edward. Victor was a film director, having started his career in the 1920s, and had directed eight films by this point, six of which had been silent films. Mm. Edward was a film producer, and had produced three films up to this point, 
including his older brother's previous feature film, X Flame. They worked in the realm of independent film and B-movies, producing mostly mildly successful romantic comedies. The Halperins were not fans of the horror genre, but what they were fans of was the artistry that had been achieved by film in the late silent era, and they were disparaging of the state of quality in talking pictures. They wanted to make a movie that harkened back to the style of that earlier period, with strong visuals, minimal dialogue, stylized acting, and determined that the popular horror genre trend represented their best chance of getting support and funding for making a movie in that style. That's interesting because, um, I mean, like, the last movie we saw, Vampire, was very much like a stylized silent film in a lot of ways, and before that was Murders in the Room Morgue, which was a, a callback or homage to German Expressionism. Mm-hmm. The script for White Zombie is by Garrett Weston and was inspired by books like The Magic Island, which brought Haitian voodoo and zombies into American popular culture. Weston focused his script on action rather than dialogue, as the Halperins hoped to get away from the talky, stage-bound qualities of the early talking horror films. Okay. Edward Halperin raised the funds for the production independently with assistance from independent film impresario Phil Goldstone. Halperin raised a $50,000 budget from investors such as Amusement Securities and rented time and space on the Universal Studios lot as well as at Bronson Canyon, utilizing rented set pieces from Universal for an 11-day shoot. Halperin managed this on such a shoestring budget by arranging to shoot the film at night. I mean, if it worked for Spanish Dracula. Sure. So the idea was, you know, that they could just kind of go ham on the Universal Studios lot after everyone else had gotten home for the day. Yeah. In order to draw a mainstream commercial audience, the Halperins needed a mainstream box office star. And they were able to take advantage of the fact that Bela Lugosi had been cut from his Universal contract to acquire one. Even if Lugosi was persona non grata with Universal, to the public at large, he was still the internationally acclaimed star of Dracula, and the Halperins took advantage of this by crafting a very Dracula-esque part in the film for him as the film's villain. Initially, Lugosi was negotiating for a salary of a mere $900, but plus a percentage of the film's profits. However, he did not wish ultimately to take a chance on an indie film that could end up just being a flop. So Lugosi ultimately agreed for a flat $5,000 salary. Uh, this was more than the mere $3,500 he'd been paid for Dracula, but less than the studio contract salary he had made for Murders in the Rue Morgue. For the rest of the cast, the Halperins largely hired silent film stars hmm. who had fallen out of favor since the rise of talkies. Madge Bellamy, the film's female lead, was a prime example of this tactic. Bellamy was born in 1899 and got her acting start on Broadway in 1918. She began acting in film in 1921, and her first major hit was 1922's Lorna Doone. She became renowned for her beauty and had a string of hit films through the 1920s. She did get a reputation for difficulty, though, with her studio, because she regularly turned down big dramatic roles in major pictures in favor of lighter comedy parts that she felt showcased her looks. 
1928, she appeared in Fox's first talkie film, Mother Knows Best, where critics noted that her voice was quite weak. Her career began to take a major downturn as sound gained popularity, and in 1929 she walked out on her contract with Fox after refusing to appear in a film whose rights the studio had acquired just so she could star in it, believing that she wasn't earning enough money. White Zombie was her first appearance in a film since then, uh, so three years. She was paid $5,000 for her appearance and got along great with Lugosi during shooting, who spent the shoot charming her, uh, while also brushing off any attempts from the rest of the crew at friendliness. The film's cinematographer was Arthur Martinelli, a cinematography pioneer who had started his career at Metro Pictures in 1916. He was the first cinematographer to work with Ethel and John Barrymore, and had shot over a hundred films, and he was key to the Halperin's desire for a stylish, silent film look to White Zombie. Mm -hmm. Sets reused from Universal included the castle halls from Dracula, pillars and a balcony from Hunchback of Notre Dame, corridors from Frankenstein, and furniture from Cat in the Canary. The film even managed to borrow Jack Pierce from Universal, for the makeup for Lugosi and the film's zombies. How long does a studio keep these sets and pieces around? I mean, as long as they think they can keep making money on them uh, or keep redressing them, you know, as long as they don't fall apart. It, you know, if you've built a bunch of stuff for a film, that's a really big investment unless you can keep reusing it for other things. And with a new coat of paint and turned around a little... Most audiences don't notice that they're seeing the same furniture and props over and over in other films. In addition to a very successful film industry in L.A., there's a very successful storage facility industry. Oh, for sure. A film <laughs> storage facility industry, absolutely. And I mean, these things are part of a studio's assets as much as anything else. Um, you've got access to things that other studios don't have because you've made movies with them in it, right? Yeah. After the film was completed, the Halperins experienced some difficulty finding a distributor, as many of the major studios had their own horror movies planned, or just had no interest in the trend at all. But after a 74-minute preview version was shown to potential buyers on June 16, 1932, United Artists bought the rights to distribute White Zombie. We've talked about United Artists in previous episodes, but essentially it was the image comics of the 1930s movie scene, <laughs> uh, a company where film creators could operate outside of the studio structure for mutual benefit at a company where they owned their own work. And in 1932, United Artists worked with producers like Walt Disney, Howard Hughes, Samuel Goldwyn, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and was overseen by a man named Joseph Schenck. United Artists released White Zombie on July 28, 1932, at a running time of 67 minutes. Critical reaction was largely negative. Oh. Focusing on the acting and storyline, both of which were considered to be over-the-top and of subpar quality. Many reviews considered the film ludicrous and unintentionally comedic, and Vanity Fair called it tied for worst movie of the year with Murders in the Room Org. Oh no. Despite <laughs> this frosty critical reception, the film was a large commercial success, particularly for a low-budget independent film. 
it grossed well above expectations. Theater owners largely thought that the film was garbage, but they responded to audience reception and kept the film running in longer engagements than were usual. Lugosi would later express regret in his decision to take a higher salary rather than a percentage of the profits. Due to the film's commercial success, the Halperin brothers won a contract at Paramount Pictures to produce a follow-up horror film. In the years since its release, uh, particularly following its rediscovery on late-night TV and home <laughs> video, White Zombie has undergone a critical reappraisal, uh, and modern critics tend to praise the film's visuals and atmosphere. It's been called a stylistic bridge between the universal horror films of the 30s and the RKO horror films of the 1940s, and has become a cult classic referenced often in modern pop culture. Uh, for example, uh, I think it's Rob Zombie's band is named White Zombie. Yeah. After the movie. That's interesting that it's considered a bridge from like the 30s to the 40s because this movie comes so early in the 30s. Usually you see those kinds of bridges later in the decade. For sure. And also that the intent of the film was kind of to reach back to the style of the 20s, right? Yeah. So that's really interesting. I think it's mainly what people are considering to be the bridging quality is the atmosphere and visuals of the film, which are very strong in those 1940s RKO films. Yeah. So initial video releases of White Zombie were very, very low quality uh, because the film is in public domain. Uh, so you didn't have to put any effort into making them look good. Anyone could just put out a video. On DVD, uh, Rowan Group's release was largely the preferred version, but White Zombie has recently been released by Kino Video, mm. and their Blu-ray edition is now sort of considered the top version uh, to watch in terms of quality. Uh, we've put that version on to the YouTube playlist, and the film is, you know, available for free under public domain. Cool. Listeners, if you'd like to watch along with us, you can find our YouTube playlist at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Until then, we will hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back after watching White Zombie from 1932. See you on the other side, everybody. Scream scene. We just finished watching 1932's White Zombie. Ben and I have watched this before. Um, I didn't really remember it very well because when we watched it a few years before, I had a very bad migraine and that <laughs> vulture sound did not do well with a migraine. <laughs> but this time watching it, um, I'm very happy I gave such an extensive history of Haiti because the entire film is set there and I think knowing the context of the setting, whether the director is meant to or not, I think it informs a lot about what the fear of this film is. Sure. Yeah. So to give a plot summary of White Zombie, we open at night in Haiti with a burial that's happening in the middle of the road. And a carriage coming down the road has to kind of stop for this. And the occupants of this carriage are these two people, these two white people, <laughs> Neil and Madeline. 
And Neil is from Haiti, but Madeline, his fiance, has recently come over from America by ship so that they can get married. Their driver explains to them that the reason this burial is happening in the center of the road is so that the corpse can't be stolen to be made into a zombie. As they continue on, uh, their carriage stops to ask directions to the Beaumont house uh, of a man at the side of the road who is Bella Lugosi. <laughs> Bella Lugosi sort of ignores this plea for directions and instead focuses entirely on Madeline. He steals her scarf and the driver is spooked off into driving away as a cadre of zombies come up behind Bella Lugosi uh, to join him. When they arrive at the Beaumont house, their driver explains to them what zombies are, undead corpses that have been risen to do the bidding of whoever rose them up out of the dead, and then drives off. And Neil and Madeline are met at the house by a Dr. Bruner, who is a missionary working in Haiti. Uh, they are led into the house by the butler, Silver, and have to wait to see their host, Mr. Beaumont. Beaumont is a wealthy plantation owner. He has invited Neil and Madeline to his house so that it can serve as the location for their wedding. Dr. Bruner is going to wed the couple. And in exchange for this, he's also going to give Neil a job as his agent back in New York, uh, which seems like a pretty good deal, except that Beaumont was on the boat uh, that Madeline took over. That's how he met this couple, and he fell madly in love with Madeline on the boat and is determined to kind of wrest her away from Neil. To this end, he goes to meet with Bella Lugosi's character, whose name is Murder Legend. <laughs> so, a little on, on the nose, writers. A, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> but I guess as soon as you cast Bella Lugosi in your horror film, you're kind of abandoning all pretenses. Sure. So Legend owns a sugar mill, and that's where Beaumont goes to meet him and discovers that the workforce for this sugar mill consists entirely of a zombie workforce. There's a rather chilling moment where one of the zombies falls into the grinder for the sugar and is just ground up by the other zombies who don't even stop working. Uh, he meets up with Legend and they seem to have made some arrangement where what Beaumont wanted to happen was for Legende to kidnap Madeline for a period of time so that Beaumont could convince her to love him. And Legende quite rightfully kind of laughs at this plan, saying, like, you can't just kidnap someone away from their fiancé and then assume that in a month you can just make them love you. That's ridiculous. If you want to force someone to do stuff... You know, you gotta do it the zombie way. It's very effective. <laughs> um, so, sort of against Beaumont's better judgment, he makes a deal with Legende to turn Madeline into a zombie. And the key ingredient here is that Legende gives Beaumont a drug to have Madeline ingest. And it, you don't need a lot of it. It could be in a, uh, a pinprick of wine or a flower. <laughs> and so... Um, you're really going to get a lot of use out of this Bella Lugosi voice you can do. I, I'm trying to use it as much as I can. <laughs> so Beaumont takes this drug back to his place and puts it in the bouquet for uh, Madeline's wedding. He's going to be giving the bride away uh, in the absence of any of their friends or family being at this bizarre wedding. 
like the whole time walking her up the aisle, he's trying to convince her to leave Neil and be with him, which, you know, isn't working. But I guess he's like, this is his last ditch attempt before going with turn her into a zombie. Yeah, yeah. But like, it's, it's like, what did you think was going to happen, man? Beaumont's the worst. Anyways, uh, Madeline, like, quite understandably turns him down, and she and Neil are wed, and then at dinner afterwards, the three of them are, you know, enjoying their food, uh, having a few drinks, and Legenda is outside the manor, and he's got Madeline's scarf, and he takes a candlestick and carves it into an effigy of Madeline and then lights this effigy on fire with another street lamp uh, using his, you know, zombie voodoo powers. And Madeline kind of passes out at dinner and swiftly dies. And she's buried. Some time passes. Neil becomes a drunken wreck. Uh, you know, kind of understandably. He keeps seeing visions of her. Yeah. Meanwhile, Beaumont and Legenda meet up at Madeline's tomb to steal her body, uh, you know, so she can, the, the zombification process can continue. And Legend explains to Beaumont, like, who all of his top zombies are and how they're all former enemies of Legenda. There's the uh, voodoo witch doctor is the term they use, who taught Legend voodoo, and then Legend killed him and turned him into a zombie tortured information out of him. Yes, very that's very good point to make. There's also like the former minister of the interior, the head of the gendarme, the state executioner, like everyone who comes <laughs> after murder Lejean ends up as a zombie. <laughs> uh so they steal Madeline because he's been sort of driven to madness by these visions of Madeline, drunk Neil shows up at the tomb a little bit after to discover that Madeline's been taken. So not really knowing where to turn, he goes to Dr. Bruner, and we get a long sort of exposition sequence as Bruner sort of explains what zombies are and how they work and how they're in the criminal code and all the stuff that Sarah said before we watched the movie, <laughs> essentially. And that, you know, it is possible to get her back because she's not really dead. She's mm -hmm. just been drugged into a, you know, a death-like lethargic coma and rendered, you know, highly susceptible to suggestion and all that. So they head out. They don't really know who's got her. They think it might be the natives. I think at one point, Neil says, like, she'd be better off dead than with the natives, which, like, yeah, good job, man. But they, they go to check out Beaumont's place first, but he's not there, because Beaumont is at Castle Lenjande, a <laughs> big matte painting castle on a bluff overlooking the sea. <laughs> um, so then we find ourselves in sort of the redressed Castle Dracula sets. Mm -hmm. Um, there's Beaumont and Madeline. So she's, she's sort of back in zombie mode now and she's playing the piano and she's just got this dead look in her eyes and Beaumont's starting to realize like he didn't really want this. Like he wanted Madeline, not just, you know, her body or whatever, but like her, her soul, you know, he wanted someone he could talk to, and in fact, she doesn't really respond to anything Beaumont does, including his control, because she's under Lenjean's control, because he's the one making the zombies. Yeah. So Beaumont begs Lenjean to turn her back. Bella Lugosi gets, like, the best scenes in this movie, <laughs> but uh, Lenjean's like, yeah, for sure, like, we'll do that, but first, a toast to the future. And Silver, Beaumont's waiter, comes out with some wine, 
you should know never to drink wine with Bella Lugosi. <laughs> but uh, they bring out this wine, and Beaumont takes a sip, like a little bit before Lejean does, and then realizes what's happened. And Lejean, you know, says again, it could be in a flower or a pinprick in a glass of wine. <laughs> like, come on, dude. Yeah. So he, he drinks the wine and realizes he's been drugged now. And he yells for Silver to help him, but Legende sets his zombies upon Silver, and just they toss him into, like, the castle moat or whatever, and he dies. Meanwhile, Neil and Dr. Bruner are talking to a local Haitian witch doctor that Bruner knows about, like, who could be behind this, and they get put onto the trail of murder Legende and head over to his castle. It should be said that this witch doctor is very clearly a white guy in blackface. And we've had quite a few black extras. Just have another guy have lines. Anyways. Sorry. So they make it to the castle, but Neil uh, has contracted jungle fever or some bullshit and is sick and fainting all the time and just completely useless. So Brunner decides to head to the castle alone. Then... Neil wakes up in the middle of the night, all feverish and delirious, and also heads to the castle by himself. By this time, uh, the drug's working its way through Beaumont's system, and he kind of can only just sit there, paralyzed, watching as Lejean, like, slowly carves the effigy he needs to carve, <laughs> and tortures him with, you know, this idea of uh, the fact that Beaumont's the first person to be turned into a zombie who knew what was happening to him, and Lejean's just taking a lot of pleasure out of prolonging this process. Yeah. Neil shows up and kind of collapses in the big hall where Lejean and Beaumont are, and Lejean sets Madeline to stab Neil after he passes out. Because Lashawn's just kind of a big sadist, really. Like, I think he's, his motivation in this movie seems mostly just to be to fuck with people. Yeah. Um, but Madeline is stopped when a cloaked hand reaches from off screen and grabs the knife from her. I mean, she's struggling. Yeah, you, you, you get the impression that she's, like, struggling against Lejean's will. Madeline runs off to the kind of outside of the castle, this kind of balcony overlooking the sea uh and neil gets up and follows her and is all you know madeline madeline don't you recognize me don't you know me blah 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 <laughs> and uh Lejean comes out to where they are and he sets his zombie goons on neil and neil's backing up you know to the edge of the balcony and oh like what's gonna happen and he shoots at the zombies a bunch of times and hey man that's not gonna do anything um <laughs> But then he's saved at the last moment when the cloaked figure from earlier, who it turns out is just Dr. Bruner, beans Bella Lugosi on the back of the head with like a pipe or something. And uh, Lejean goes down and Neil kind of ducks out of the way of the zombies. And I guess they just do whatever the last command they got was in absence <laughs> of any other stimuli because they just all walk off the cliff like lemmings and die. So everyone's kind of reunited with Lejeune unconscious. Madeline kind of snaps out of her stupor a little bit, but then Lejeune gets up again and I guess kind of sees the writing on the wall because he decides he's just going to piece. Uh, <laughs> but his escape is blocked by Beaumont, who I guess came out of it as well during this brief period, who attacks Lejeune, who, well, they both go over the edge and we see them like fall a ton of feet 
and then land in this, like, waterfall and get washed away. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, Madeline's back to normal, and everyone's reunited, and it's a happy ending, the end. What are your, what are your sort of initial thoughts on this movie, Sarah? Like, I think it's a fine enough movie. I definitely see the inspirations and homage to silent film. Like, you definitely see it when Legend is controlling Madeline to stab Neil. Just the way that, you know, everyone's acting and the cuts are and everything. But I think this movie was doing some interesting things with sound, ironically. Just, like, the way that the sound mix was. Um, I think it was doing some neat things with some of the shadows and stuff for cinematography. It definitely achieves that tone and atmosphere with the sets. Really, especially with the sets. But, like, maybe it's because we just watched Vampire, which is, like, a far better, like, created film sure. than this. But, like, this is a fine enough film, and, like, you know, it, it's good. I mean, it's worth remembering that, like, this film was made for very little money on a very tight schedule, I think it's maybe worth dividing this movie up into, like, what works and what doesn't, and figuring out which side comes up with more <laughs> points. I think the film's visually very beautiful. The cinematography is a very excellent display of contrast, heavy whites, very thick blacks, and they coordinate that well with the movie's production design, um, especially, like, the costumes. Like, one thing I noticed is... Our heroes are basically always dressed in white, and our villains are basically always dressed in black. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose that speaks to the fact that this movie has a very simplistic story. Um, yeah, like it's yeah. it's basically Haitian Dracula, <laughs> right? Like this is kind of just a remake of Dracula with like one additional new element thrown in and set in a different place. Like I don't know, I. Bella Lugosi's doing his hypnotic corruption of an innocent maiden thing. Yeah, I I think it's different enough that, like, I wouldn't immediately go to Dracula. Maybe it's the fact that they use the exact same cinematic techniques to indicate Lugosi's hypnotism. I mean, they go further with it in this movie than they did in Dracula, but it's the same, like, glowing close-ups on his eyes and hand gestures and things. Like, they've definitely latched onto Dracula's coattails, but we kind of knew that when they hired Bella Lugosi and like the context <laughs> setting you gave. That's true. So I'm not gonna fault it for them. Like I kind of go like, "Come on, guys!" But like I'm not really going to fault them for it. But I think they changed the plot enough that it's not just that. I do think they achieved their goal of making a more cinematic film. Like this movie puts more on the screen and has more visual ambition than Todd Browning's Dracula did. Like, that movie had a much higher budget, but this movie feels like, maybe not that it has a bigger budget than Dracula, but certainly feels like it maybe had the same budget, even though I know that its budget was, like, a sixth of what Dracula's was. Yeah, and, like, while we do get exposition, that scene with the Doctor and Neil talking about it, it's, like, all in one shot or something, and it begins and ends with, like, this weird beginning thing behind Neil's back and the camera kind of moves around a bit. Like, they're doing some really interesting things to make it not just be, like, this is just a stage play on film. Yeah, they're, the, you know, um, Arthur Martinelli always keeps the camera moving mm -hmm. throughout this whole film. I think sometimes it's a little bit to the movie's detriment because you can tell maybe that their sound equipment they were using wasn't the best because 
as the camera moves around, the dialogue kind of dips in and out of clarity sometimes, but uh, it's a valiant effort, that's for sure. Yeah. I could imagine a silent version of this film with title cards being very successful. One of my biggest problems with this movie is that, for the most part, the second anyone opens their mouth to talk, the movie's appeal is, like, nearly ruined. What do you mean by that? Other than Lugosi, I'm not a big fan of the cast. That's just because Bella Lugosi is really good. Uh, yes, but, like, okay, so you've got John Heron as Neil, who's basically an even more overdramatic version of David Manners' Jonathan Harker character. Like, they, they sound so similar to me. Um, Madeline! Mina. Yeah, exactly. Oh, darling, what's wrong with you? With that trans- <laughs> Don't you recognize me? You look at me so strangely. Yeah, with that transatlantic accent. While Madge Bellamy makes it for an excellent zombie, when she's alive, she's very wooden and flat, and it kind of undercuts the movie because I find myself wondering how she could be such, like, an object of devotion for three of the male characters in this story. Like, we don't really get a chance to see what makes Madeline such a vibrant personality. Like, one of the big turning points in the movie is Beaumont realizing that once she's been turned into a zombie, there's nothing really to her, and realizing what a mistake he's made. But the living Madeline we see doesn't really have enough screen presence or charisma to suggest what has been lost. I feel like she was hired for two reasons. One, they're going for a silent film thing, and she was a big star in the silent film era, so it makes sense to hire her. Mm -hmm. But her part is played, like, for the most part, I would say, like, 50% of the time that she's on screen, she's the zombie. Yeah. So it makes sense to hire a silent film actress because you're silent and you're just moving around. Yeah. But I think this is a case of, like, that one quote from Jekyll and Hyde where the director wanted to hire for someone to play Jekyll, not for someone to play Hyde. I think that would that advice would have helped them here to hire someone to play non-zombie Madeline. Yeah, like, ultimately, I think if you got an actress who could play the other stuff, she could probably play staring off-screen and walking around in a daze pretty solidly. Like, it's not hard. Counterpoint. Madge is actually really good as a zombie. Yeah, she's great as a zombie. She's really good as a zombie. She manages to get that dead look in her eye, and then, like, when she's kind of coming back, there is something there. Maybe it's just the way that the light is hitting her eyes differently. But, like, I think she does a very good job as a zombie. That sounds like a backhanded compliment, <laughs> though, because you're just staring off into space. Yeah. Robert Frazier plays Beaumont. He's also a little over the top with his dialogue delivery, but he at least, of the people in the cast, manages to hold his own against Bela Lugosi, who yes. he spends most of his scenes with. The scenes of him with Lugosi, the two that come to mind are when they first meet in Lejean's office, and then later when the poison is starting to take effect on his body. Like, Robert Frazier's performance is actually, like, pretty good. He manages, like, he's doing the overacting silent film thing, but it works because you're with Bela Lugosi. You kind mm -hmm. of have to overact a little bit in order to match him. Mm -hmm. The thing about this movie is that it shares something in common with Murders in the Room Morgue, which is that Bela Lugosi's the best thing about it. Yeah. He's having a ball with this movie. You can tell from his line delivery that he's just wringing every little bit of sadistic 
charisma out of his dialogue. <laughs> I just love his betrayal of Beaumont. The <laughs> smirking satisfaction that he has in turning the tables on this guy really just make him a great villain in this movie. And he doesn't really turn the tables. Like, he's always had Beaumont in his pocket. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's very a very good point. It's just Beaumont realizing he was never in control of the situation. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, ultimately, it's murders Lejean's uh, Faustian kind of manipulation of Beaumont that's the best part of White Zombie. I think it's the greatest feeling of horror I get in White Zombie, because Madeline's character is so passive uh, and is just kind of an object that people react to or act around. Like, Madeline's less of a character and more of a MacGuffin, right? She could be hmm. the Death Star plans for all that really matters. If you can replace your leading lady with a sexy lamb. Yeah. But Beaumont, he actually, because he is aware of what zombies are and how the process works and his process of being turned into one is delayed and drawn out, you really get to kind of empathize with him in the movie as this process is happening and feel the horror with him, right? Like, Madeline doesn't know what's happening to her. She just is alive one moment, dead the next. But the horror of the idea of having your will and your sense of self taken away from you is much more potent in the scenes with Beaumont. For me, like, those are the moments where the film becomes the strongest, uh, is, is in Lugosi's betrayal of Beaumont. Agree that the film shows that horror best with that. If Madge had been, like you said, more charismatic when she was non-zombie, I think this film would have had a very interesting thing to say about body autonomy. Sure. No, I think, I mean, I think it's, it, like, it it's goes there, to those but places. Like, because Madeline doesn't have much of a screen presence, the film actually shines and shows that when it's, between Beaumont and Lejeune. There's something to be said about this poison and a date rape drug. Oh, for sure. I think the thing is, when I say that those that horror is most effective in the scenes with Beaumont, I think the focus of the movie is supposed to be Madeline. I just don't think it's effective. Yeah. And one of the reasons it's not is because Madeline's not allowed to be a character. So our fear for Madeline, we're not allowed to empathize with her position, she's not someone the audience is supposed to be identifying with. We're supposed to be identifying with Neil, right? The movie has some interesting stuff to be dug out of it about the way that men take body autonomy away from the women that they're obsessed with. Beaumont realizes that he doesn't want that, but the twist immediately after that is Legend is totally cool with that. You know, he's like, well, like, I'm going to take her for myself. He actually also says uh, immediately after that, and right before he turns Lejeune into a zombie, that I've taken a fancy to you as well, monsieur. Um, so yeah. there's some sexual perversion stuff happening, sexual deviancy stuff happening with Lugosi's character. Ugh. <sighs> Anyways. Um, but what I'm getting at is that because the movie doesn't let Madeline be a character, we're supposed to be empathizing with Neil, so the fear instead of being the interesting fear of examining how men deny body autonomy to women, the fear once again becomes, oh, the bad guy's stolen my girl. And it's like, ugh, we've been here before. <laughs> so, like, that's kind of where the fact that they've kept the setting in Haiti and Beaumont being a plantation owner 
with other signs of colonialism, it's like, is this Haiti or is this like Saint Domingue? At what point oh, in Haiti's history is this actually taking place? Right? I believe the question you're meaning to ask is, what, what year, year is it? it? But like we we've, we've already talked about how once someone is a zombie, they're basically owned. Mm -hmm. Um, and the coach driver, when he, he's telling Neil and Madeline about zombies in the first place, he points out how, like, when you're a zombie, you work on end, like you just are consistently working that there they go off to work at the mill and he's very scared about this. And I, there's just something there in the sense that like, it's set in Haiti that it's like a continuation of slavery. Absolutely. Like that's the that's totally what it is because like Lejeune has that line in the sugar mill about like they are not concerned with long hours like you should get yourself some zombies too the men that we see working in the mill they're pretty much all black men yes the goons that he has with him that act as like you know the thugs that go to beat people up they could be non-white. It looks like white men in makeup. At least in the narrative of the film, some of them are clearly white, others are clearly supposed to be darker skinned, mm -hmm. um, and there's some that are kind of ambiguously in the middle there somewhere. Black and white film doesn't always render skin tones clearly enough to identify racial stuff like that sometimes. For sure. But notably, like our main villain is a white guy. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, Both of who, our villains are white guys. Well, I mean, the guy who has the power, the voodoo power. Mm -hmm. He's white. He tortured his mentor, witch doctor, as he calls him, to gain this zombie knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, we see this appropriation of this practice, and then this white man it enacts a kind of slavery and bodily and oppression of people. I think, like, yeah, maybe this film was trying to talk about the way, or or at least, like, maybe there's a nugget there of the way men treat women's body autonomy and ownership over women, whatever. But I think, like, a perhaps bigger nugget is with zombies being such a fear in Haiti culture even today this fear of, of your sense of self and free will being taken away yet again. Yeah, I mean, you made such a big point of the, you know, foundational values of Haiti being anti-slavery and uh, that bit about white men not being even allowed to own property and stuff like that. And I think that, you know, Lejeune is a character who, you know, we are explicitly told went into this culture, stole that culture's knowledge, and then is using that to oppress the culture for his own financial benefit, mm -hmm. right? And I think that ultimately that's what, you know, if you want to talk about the cultural allegory that the fear of zombies represents, uh, it's the fear of the return of slavery. Because yeah. it's, a, it's a kind of slavery that won't even end when you're dead, right? And I think it's really telling that, like... This film shows the zombies not as the source of fear, but as Lejeune is the source of fear. He will take your agency away. Absolutely. What I'm drawn to is the unique construction of the story that it's ultimately about, in terms of the characters who have, like, arcs and stuff, it's ultimately about one villain being betrayed by a greater villain. Yeah. And when you compare the two, I think there's some interesting parallels where 
you know, if we're talking about cultural appropriation and racism and colonial oppression, you have these spectrums of like, oh, well, I'm not that bad, kind <laughs> of, that, that, that happen, right? Yeah. Where, um, you know, like, for example, to this day, convicts in southern areas of the United States are often used um, as, like, servants at government houses and other large estates, which basically put them in the exact same social role as slaves in the South um, before the Civil War. Yeah. Um, but that's not as bad, because they're not really slaves, they're convicts, right? So I'm not a slave owner, I just have a house where convicts work for me <laughs> for no money, right? Like, yeah. Um, and I think you see a bit of that here, where Beaumont, you know, as a rich plantation owner, he's obviously used to getting his way, uh, he has a lot of power, he has servants, uh, and he would have employed Haitian labor for his wealth, uh, probably at extremely low wages uh, during the U.S. occupation. If it wasn't forced labor, most Haitian laborers made like 20 cents a day or something like that. Mm. But even Beaumont doesn't have the power and the control that Lejean does, uh, whose labor force doesn't need to be paid anything at all. You know, and when Lejean says, I could give you some of my workers, like, even Beaumont's, like, a little... Weirded out. Yeah, he's a little turned off by that idea, right? You know, Beaumont's this exploiter of men, and he views Madeline as just an object of conquest. But ultimately, he just can't compete with his better, Lejeanne, who does his exploiting and his conquering with these magic powers that he took from the Haitians themselves. Our villains are defeated... By the priest comes in, mm -hmm. the doctor just like hits Bella on the head, mm -hmm. so it kind of breaks the spell. It's not like oh the power of God. It's like no, I just it's bonked pipe him to on the, the back head. Of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then that's enough for Beaumont to then be able to push Bella off the cliff and then fall because he's dazed as well. It's not like <sighs> mysticism defeats mysticism, right? Well, the other thing is, like, you know, we talked last week about is Alan Gray really necessary in Vampire? And I'm sitting here like, is Neil really necessary in White Zombie? Necessary in the sense of, like, why else would a woman say no to Beaumont? I think maybe, other than, like, Beaumont's a creep. But, like, yeah, I think Neil is there so that Beaumont has to resort to hiring Legende. And I think he's also there because... Could you imagine a version of this movie that then ended with, like, Beaumont being like, Oh, Madeline, now we can be together. Like, or being like, oh, you saved me, thank you. Yeah. I guess I'll date you now. Yeah, it's... it's, we it's need... So we can have a happy ending. Yeah, it's... it's Which we is need... clearer because it, the film ends with a joke of the doctor again asking for a match for his goddamn pipe. Yes. Uh, because the doctor is not only our Van Helsing, he's also our comic relief. Yes. Um, this, like, centering of horror movies around, like, young engaged couples and they, like they're, they're married yes they're married um engaged or newlywed couples <laughs> and like having to kind of keep them separate from really any of the interesting stuff in the story so they can end the movie kind of pure at the end is starting to i think get repetitive for me a little bit although as much as i want characters like jonathan harker and neil to be a little bit more can do if they were that would turn these from, like, horror movies into, like, adventure movies, I guess. How do you feel with the film 
justifying the horror by having a, a romantic happy ending versus the films that we've seen that justify its horror by having comedic elements. Um, I, Do you I, prefer comedy or romance? I, I think romance? I'd, I'd rather have the romance than the comedy okay. on, like, you know, on paper, but it really depends on, like, how well the writer can do romance, and so much of the romance in these recent films has been so sappy and, like, just not engaging for yeah. me. So I kind of want to talk about the soundtrack of this movie. Um, you said that you felt the movie did a lot of really interesting things with sound. Um, I had a bit of a more negative reaction to the soundtrack, so I'd be interested in hearing what you liked about it. So I hate this goddamn vulture that, like, <laughs> screams out of friggin' nowhere. But I think that's an interesting thing to think about in the context of that thing you mentioned in the, in the context setting of, like, this is the film that bridges, like, universal horror to RKO horror. Mm -hmm. um, because when I think RKO horror, I think cat people with the very first jump scare. Right, the, the, the bus. Yes. So with the, the vultures screeching, like, I think this is, like, something that's, like, maybe planting the seed of that idea mm -hmm. in, in someone's brain. And I think the way that, like, it sometimes plays with music being diegetic. We talked about diegesis last episode, so I won't rehash that. Um, but, like, uh, when Madeline's getting ready into her dress, uh, her maid goes over to open the door and we hear drumming outside and it's Haitians drumming to scare away evil spirits, the maid says, and Madeline's scared so she's like, close the door and you can hear like the music outside kind of like muffled, get louder when the door is open and then go back to being muffled and then eventually fade away. Um, but there's like another moment that they do that. Bella Lugosi's in like the courtyard whittling the wax candle and we hear, like, this, like, very, like, spooky music or whatever that's very loud with him. And then we cut inside for the dinner, and the music is muffled. Yeah, as so if it's, it's like, just following him around. Exactly. And so just, like, little things like that that are, like, little humorous, but I really enjoy. So I think they're doing some things that are kind of playing with the sound mix a little bit. I liked that this movie sometimes was willing to let sound effects tell the story. We don't see certain things sometimes, but we hear them, right? Like Silver's death, where we kind of hear his screaming off screen. When Neil is in the tomb, seeing that Madeline's body is gone, and we just have a shot of the open door of the tomb, we don't see Neil, but we hear his scream and we fade Oh, or, yeah, it, it even works really well in that scene with the Doctor and Neil giving talking about the exposition of, like, history of Haiti and voodoo, zombies, and the way that uh, the Doctor's voice acts as the transition to the next scene. Yeah, or even, like, the, the opening of the movie is really memorable with this kind of Haitian chanting over the credits. Like, this movie doesn't have kind of a traditional credit sequence, I mean, it's very traditional by 2017 standards, but by 1932 standards, it's non-traditional because the credits are over actual footage of an actual scene that's in the story of the movie, mm -hmm. and we get this chant over them that's pretty haunting. So what I don't like about the soundtrack, it's, it's hard to, you know, now in 2017 discern how much of this is bad equipment or bad recording at the time, how much of it is just the age of the film and the fact that it's very hard to 
restore sound elements. It's much easier to restore film elements of old movies. In addition to the fact that I think a lot of the dialogue's pretty poorly delivered, especially from Neil and Madeline. Um, the actual quality of the dialogue recording's often poor, and it made it hard for me to understand some of the dialogue at times. And uh, I already talked about the way that because the Halperins and Arthur Martinelli weren't afraid to keep their camera moving, they do suffer a bit from the reason why everyone else was, which is actors moving kind of out of microphone polar pattern and getting kind of a little bit harder to discern. But I think that the thing that really makes this movie difficult for me is um, the way that the music soundtrack was created. There's music throughout the whole movie, which is appreciated. Uh, that's fairly new for where we're at in the history of film. But it's all pre-recorded library tracks of classical music pieces. I think they had some difficulty with the sound edit and the sound mix incorporating these pieces into the film because it sometimes feels a little bit clumsy. They just have these pre-recorded pieces so they can't quite sync it to the action that well. So sometimes it just kind of cuts out if they don't need it anymore, or sometimes they try to fade it down, and sometimes they have a difficult time finding a, an appropriate level for the background music so that the dialogue can still be heard over it. Um, and it just makes the movie a little hard to enjoy. It gives me kind of a barrier to really being immersed in the world of the film sometimes, uh, fighting against uh, this kind of primitive music soundtrack. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think it's unfortunate, and I think it's ironic also, because, like, you can kind of give the directors, like, a come on, dudes. They wanted to kind of recreate or do the homage to silent films. So, because that's their focus, you still gotta put some effort into the, where your sound stuff is, where the boom mic is. Yeah, you know? yeah, for sure. Um, the reason why it's kind of ironic that it has these problems with the music and the soundtrack, you need that for a silent film. Yeah. So at the very least, they should have put, they should have thrown money at that, you know? They should have been, it, it does feel sloppy. It feels a little bit of an amateur thing. Yeah, especially when the visuals of the movie are not sloppy at all, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I said, like, if I could see a version of this movie that was had, like, title cards instead of dialogue, I think this movie would be great. Nothing ruins your movie faster than bad sound. You can have the best visuals in the world, and if the sound recording is bad, your movie will feel like it's poorly made. Um, I think that the film works as well as it does, despite its flaws, is somewhat remarkable. The visual stylishness and Lugosi and his menacing villainy, I think, combine to create a movie that succeeds at being memorable and enjoyable, despite a lot of creaky moments in the movie. I would agree with that. The things that make this movie a good horror movie is Bela Lugosi, parts of the sound mix, and the sets. Yeah. And the, uh, and the, and the cinematography. cinematography, of course. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I should have... Probably should have listed that first, but... Yeah. <laughs> so we've, we've touched on it a little bit throughout this discussion, but I, I wanted to kind of head-on address the racism a little. So there's not, like, a ton of it in terms of like, screen time, I guess. But then again, it's also, like, right there in the title. Like, it's right there in the title. Like, Haitians being made into zombies may be one thing, but a white zombie? 
A white woman. A white woman zombie, no less. Heaven forbid. Yeah. There's definitely that feeling of, like, protect the white woman from the... Ugh. Yep. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's what's in there. I mean, that's... It's the title of the movie. That's what's... I feel like no matter what we in 2017 interpret about this movie's fears and horrors and about loss of self and loss of body autonomy and and uh, male-female relations and colonialism and these sorts of things, I think in 1932 it's, oh my god, a white person's been turned into a zombie. Like, I think that's very central in 1932 to what this movie's about. Like, this movie's set in Haiti, but it's not really about Haitians, right? Like, we've already talked about how there's really only one African-American actor in the movie, uh, at least with a speaking role. Yeah. And that the other dark-skinned character in the film, the Haitian witch doctor, uh, who has a speaking role, is a man in blackface. Because of that, the feeling I kind of come away with, and it's why I opened this discussion the way I did, is that at the end of the day, like, Haiti and voodoo and zombies really just for me feel like they provide a sort of topical, exotic backdrop to what is essentially a kind of Dracula or Faust-style fantasy horror film. I would completely agree. This movie is set on, like, the only white people in Haiti, you know? Mm. Uh, in terms of what this film would tell us. Right. Uh, I was talking earlier about how this film kind of shows us really interesting things in terms of, like, a white man appropriating this culture to, like, oppress the culture it stole it from, and also with, like, zombie as allegory for renewed slavery and things like that. That's not what the film is focusing on. That's just things I'm picking up from the film. Yeah, like, the any readings of this film that, you know, address these colonialist elements uh, and this film's context in the history of Haiti... I think are largely not uh, to the film's credit. Well, and not the film's intent, right? Yes. They sort of arise out of the intertextual nature of the way this film interacts with your pre-existing knowledge of the history of these cultures. Yes. Um, and arises therefore in the audience's mind. But I think the film's intent is merely that it lets them do the Dracula or Faust style story without hauling out vampires or the devil again, and instead giving us, like, a new kind of place that would have been exciting and new and topical to Americans at the time because of the occupation and the release of the Magic Island book and, and so on. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I think this film, like, it's set in Haiti, but I think, like, it would fit in the... I don't know if it's, like, a genre or groupings of films that would be set in, like, quote-unquote, darkest Africa, you know? Sure. Like, it has a bit of that feeling. That's how they treat Haiti, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the fact is, it's Haiti so that they can have zombies. Totally. Right? But, I mean, you could say that this movie is set long ago in a faraway land for all that it gets really a feeling of specificity about anything, other than that everyone calls each other Monsieur. Right. Yeah, the French thing, and then also I guess the plantations. Yeah, um, he's got a fucking castle on a yeah. cliff, right? Like, <laughs> like there's a certain fairy tale quality to the world that this is set in that feels a little bit divorced from reality. Yeah. Do you want to move into ranking white zombie? Yes, I do. Okay. What sort of range do you have picked out? 
Uh, it's interesting. I was really looking at this movie as a whole in terms of how it delivered a horror movie. And, and I tried to keep the things that I did pick up out of it in terms of like all those things I just said that aren't necessarily the film's intent of what the horror is and everything. Uh, I tried to keep that out of my brain when I was ranking it, but I still wound up ranking it a little higher than maybe what I should be. But I was kind of looking with the floor being around Genuina mm -hmm. and the ceiling being kind of around Usher, honestly, Fall of the House of Usher. So between 12 and 17. Okay. I kind of started with Murders in the Room Morgue sitting at number 16. I think that makes sense. Yeah, it worked, worked around there. Fall of the House of Usher and like I even have Freaks written down. Like that's way high. Um, I, I'm probably looking more around 15, 16, 17. So you basically have the same range I do. Okay. My floor was also uh, Genuina, uh, specifically in the idea that this is better than that. <laughs> uh, so this would replace Genuina as number 17 on the list if it went there. Yes. Uh, and then my ceiling was um, Freaks. Uh, I think it's possible that we could have a discussion about is this better than Freaks or not, but I did not think this was better than the remake of Student of Prague. Uh, so that was sort of my range was 11 to 17. So very similar to yours. Yeah. I was looking at the films below Murders in the Room Morgue. And I was like, this is a better horror movie than Genuina. This is a better horror movie than the other films below there. Yeah, the there. Bat, the Magician, the Bat Whispers. Mm -hmm. And then I got to Murders in the Room Morgue. And I was like, these are both interesting to look at in comparison. The best thing in both of them is Bella Lugosi. Yes. <laughs> I think in terms of the final product, because Murders in the Room Morgue went through that weird hack and slash editing thing mm -hmm. and has the fucking tone shifts into pastoral and all of that. Yeah, I think the tone is more consistent in White Zombie. Like, there's comic relief, but it's it's very mild and it's in one character kind of sprinkled throughout. But otherwise, I think the tone in White Zombie is consistent. Yeah. So it's really just the consistent tone that is pushing White Zombie higher up. Mm -hmm. um, I would honestly be like fairly comfortable putting it either above or below the 1913 Student of Prague, mainly just because Student of Prague, yeah, it starts as a romantic drama and then goes into horror, but it's it leads you in. Um, it, yeah. it hooks you, uh, similar to how this film hooks you with that mystery of like, who are they talking about in the beginning and, and kind of goes in. So I honestly, I'm kind of looking around number 14. Okay, so I, I, I could agree with that. Like, I think, ultimately, you know, um, while there's stuff about the 1913 Student of Prague I really like, and same with Unheimokage Schichten, that there's a level of, like, filmmaking craft present in White Zombie that just kind of naturally comes out of it being uh, a film made much later. And neither of those films have Bela Lugosi. They've got Paul Wigner and Conrad Veidt, but... <laughs> um, and that's close, but, you know. What's your thoughts on this versus Hands of Orlac? This doesn't have the weird ending thing that <laughs> Hands of Orlac has. Yeah, the plot of this movie is much simpler and easier <laughs> to follow. Like, okay, so Hands of Orlac, it is very much more concerned with showing Conrad Veidt going insane about his hands. Uh, it includes the stuff about his wife dealing with finances and all of that stuff because plot says it needs to. This is consistent all the way through. It's simpler, easier to follow. Doing some neat things with sound, but I'm not really going to compare that because Orlac's hand is silent. 
Both were doing some really amazing stuff with cinematography. Yeah, I think the that's... shadow and everything. That's a worthwhile thing to try and compare between the two. Because Hands of Orlac was one of the first times that we started to see German Expressionism toned down. Like, we still had cavernous sets, but it wasn't like... And, and like, I think there were times that light was painted on, but it wasn't so focused on, right? Like, it was just kind of there in the background with Conrad Wright move, moving around. Um, we had, like, the neat stuff with the train. Yes. The focus in that movie is very much on Veidt's performance, I feel. Yeah. This, again, I, I you can clearly see the inspiration from German Expressionism. It's kind of doing its own thing. To compare Bela Lugosi's performance with Conrad Veidt's performance, I think Conrad Veidt might be better. Yep. Even uh, though it's, yeah. like, a little one note of, like, my hands are not my own. Whereas Bela Lugosi is a bit more swarmy. Well, I think... Lugosi's more fun. Yeah. Uh, but, like, Veidt's probably, like, acting, you know, more. Um, whereas <laughs> Lugosi's kind of just having fun, but he's so charismatic that it just makes it work at every turn, right? My my thing with White Zombie is I keep coming back to, like, how much the movie falls apart for me when Lugosi's not on screen. <laughs> you know, despite its best efforts to remain really engaging... The characters don't have the kind of psychological interest or emotional range as good as the cinematography is and as great as the production design and the sets and stuff are. You know, if this was, um, you know, the guy who played the villain in The Monster Walks or something Mm. playing Lugosi's role, like, I think we wouldn't be really discussing this movie as this cult classic that it is today, right? So that puts it below Hounds of Orlac. What do you think about with the 1913 Student of Prague? Because I think, like, that movie's great because of Paul Wagner. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoy how it just takes you down that rabbit hole. But I think in terms of the, how the rest of the film constructs things, uh, in terms of, like, the sets, the cinematography, everything, I mean, Student of Prague... That's like the first film we watched. Yeah, it's very old at this point. But it it honestly is a little pedestrian until it turns into a horror film at, within like the last 15 minutes. The thing about Student of Prague is that like Wegner wasn't the only good thing about it. Scapanelli, the actor who plays him, oh, yeah. John Gatoet, was also very good in that movie. Um, and better even than in the remake of Student of Prague where Scapanelli kind of fell by the wayside. Um, I think that original Student of Prague is still very good for all the reasons that you've just said about the way that it slowly draws you in. The issue with it is pacing in terms of how long it spends on, like, fancy balls and stuff oh, before yeah. it really gets into the stuff that's interesting. White Zombie kind of grips you from the word go with, like, you know, this carriage at night and this voodoo ritual and Lugosi's eyes superimposed before we even meet him as a character, sort of telling us that we've entered into this realm of horror. So I feel like... I'm comfortable with putting this um, below the hands of Orlac, above the student of Prague. I am also comfortable. All right. So entering the list at number 14, White Zombie, 1932, directed by Victor Halperin. If you would like to see this list, you can visit our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can see where all of these other films rank on the list. You can find our YouTube playlist and you'll also find an appeal box where you can submit appeals, but you can also submit concerns or questions or comments if you disagree or vehemently 
agree with <laughs> where we, we bring things. If Tumblr isn't your bag, feel free to contact us through email with screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday and is available on iTunes and SoundCloud, as well as any other podcatchers that are connected to those two services. We'd really appreciate it if you'd like to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps the show get seen, as well as any comments you'd like to leave on SoundCloud. We mostly just want to hear your feedback. Another great way to help the show is to tell people that you know about it. It's October, we're closing in on Halloween, and if you've got some friends who are interested in diving into classic horror films, uh, I think this show is a great way to help contextualize some of these old movies for modern viewers. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, up to this point, we've been watching a whole lot of movies in black and white. And I wonder if I could interest you in something in red and green. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so next week's film, which will be going up on October 25th, which more or less is going to make it our Halloween episode, is 1932's two-tone Technicolor horror film, Dr. X. Yes. From the Warner Brothers studio, directed by future Casablanca director Michael Curtiz. And starring Faye Ray. Yes. And uh, Lionel Atwell as well. I am so excited to watch this movie for the podcast. So uh, be sure to join us next week for our Halloween special. <laughs> this whole show is kind of a Halloween special. But yeah, there, there's no like Halloween special episode. It's a Halloween special show. Yeah. But be sure to join us for Dr. X. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.